Welcome back to the Fireman Trainers Podcast, Season 3, Episode 13, published on May 31st, 2022. We are a day late because of the Memorial Day holiday, and hope everyone spent a little time remembering those who gave all so we could live in a free country. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and our guest today is Clint Macro from Trigger Pressers Union to talk about range safety briefings. Our podcast is part of the ConcealCarry.com network, where you can get the original ConcealCarry.com podcast, the Not Your Average Gun Girl podcast, and the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Visit the website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage offer and their competitive pricing. If you're a certified instructor, then you can apply for FTA coverage. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the Range Tech Shot Timer. A shot timer is a critical tool to measure performance, and no credible fire instructor hosts a class without one. Range Tech Timer is both the most affordable and most feature-rich shot timer on the market. Connected via Bluetooth to a tablet on the firing line to simplify recording times and sharing them with your students. Range Tech also features Bluetooth integration with Practice Score and built-in auto scoring based on USPSA, IDPA, multi-gun, or steel challenge scoring schemes. Learn more at rangetechtimer.com. A quick reminder, make sure you enter in weekly for the podcast prize giveaway at podcast.concealcarry.com. Entries do not carry over from week to week. This week's winner is Rob again, and unfortunately not me again. And they won a ready up gear belt clip. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Clint Macro from Trigger Pressers Union. Welcome, Clint. Welcome back to the, uh, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's always a pleasure to come on your show. We always appreciate you and your uh, information, sharing it with everybody. For those listeners that don't know who Clint Macro is and haven't listened to the other episodes you've been on, can you give us a little bit of your background? Oh, well, I actually, uh, I've had my own company, the trigger pressers union for a number of years now, and I've been fortunate enough to, you know, be a shameless self promoter and create opportunities and sometimes be in the right place at the right time. I've done quite a bit of work with the NRA over the years and over the last, uh, I'd say since probably about 2014, been a lot more uh, involved with the USCCA and helping to uh, spread the gospel of their curriculum and get more people certified to teach that those classes. I've been involved with the DS, DSF program, and I've done some work with Rob Pincus and ICE training. Um, lately, the last couple of years, been a lot more involved with legislative pursuits and pro-liberty activism in Pennsylvania through Firearms Owners Against Crime and the Allegheny County Sportsman's League. And of course, uh, I'm the, the co-founder and administrator for National Train of Teacher Day which is coming up. I should give a shameless plug here of June 18th, uh, Saturday, June 18th is our national train of teacher day the, this year, our fifth annual. And if people have not registered for that instructor wise, um, to offer training for teachers and youth instructors out there, go out there and register and offer some training for them. Uh, definitely worthwhile. And if you know somebody who's a teacher or who's a youth instructor, um, scouting youth groups, anything along those lines, have them check out there and take some training and help, uh, create a better protector for our youth that are out there. Yeah. Folks and users, anyone that fits that category of being a school staff administrator, teacher, or anyone that works with youth in a leadership capacity can 
connect with the volunteer instructors who are offering training on that day for free on the website. If they just look for uh, the training tab on the national train of teacher day.com, any instructors that want to volunteer their time, if they go into the volunteer tab, they can submit their information and then uh, I'll do my level best to get you on the website as soon as I possibly can. It usually takes me a couple of days to get folks listed up there, but we've had quite a, quite a bit of people volunteer again this year. So we've got several hundred instructors across the country. I'm not quite in all 50 states, but we picked up a couple extra states since the last time I was on the show talking about National Train of Teacher Day. So that's pretty exciting. Well, that's great. Great. Always uh, always great to have you on, talk about all those worthwhile endeavors. And I'll do a shameless uh, plug for you also, Clint. It also shows us as instructors, we not only should be instructing our students on proper uh, firearm usage, but also we need to become active in firearm endeavors to make our legislators know what our feelings are, make sure that we're helping and giving back to our communities. Um, we need to be more than just uh, involved one dimensionally, you know, it's two, three, four dimensional, uh, similar to what Clint's doing in the gun industry. So thank you, Clint. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need to, not only protect ourselves from criminals, but we have to protect ourselves from elected officials too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Hey, let's get on to our topic of today. And that is range safety briefings. And the, this topic came up, uh, was suggested by a listener. And the one thing it brings, if you've taken any number of classes, you've probably seen people that do very short, concise to the point uh, briefings. And you've also probably seen other people that get very long winded. And at the end of it, you really aren't sure what they were trying to tell you, but I can tell from personal experience, I've seen Clint do a range safety briefing, probably at least a half dozen times. And each time I learn a little bit that I take away and put in my range safety briefing. So he's the perfect person to come and talk about range safety briefings today. Well, perfect. I, I appreciate that. Although I don't know if I can live up to that standard. <laughs> well, Hey, if I can come out with one thing I learned from this podcast, even being the host, it'll be well worth uh, my time and everybody else's time. Well, Hey, Clint, first thing, can you explain to everybody what the, what a range safety briefing is? Well, it, it's a, taking the time, allocating the time to be able to educate the the users, the participants, the, the maybe the folks that are there observing on what the policy and the procedure of that event is so that they can better, you know, enjoy that event, you know, what they can do, how they can do, where they can do it. And of course, part of that, there needs to be an emergency procedure in place that we can breach and discuss, you know, uh, we need to acknowledge that when human beings get together, there is more danger. And when human beings get together in the range, well, we need to have we need to have a protocol in place to deal with any type of situation where we might need to call emergency responders. So, you know, whether that be, you know, God forbid, a gunshot wound or if people pass out because of a stroke or have a heart attack or heat exhaustion. There's a lot of things that we need to consider when we formulate that plan. But by discussing it with our students or the participants, people know what the plan is. So there's, there's, there's that, you know, it's important that everyone know what to do in case of an emergency, but also by taking the time to document that plan and write it down, that helps with uh, risk mitigation. You know, anytime we can document a plan and then, you know, stick to that plan, it helps us with liability issues moving forward. If, if we had to deal with any type of litigation. Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. And one thing I always go along and point out to my students, uh, I go along and do this range safety briefing for their benefit. I also do the range safety briefing for my benefit, because as an instructor, as somebody who's not getting any younger, it's very possible that I could be the person that got heat stroke because I've been out in the sun too long or dehydrated heart attack, or maybe, you know, God forbid, I'm the one that uh, catches a ricochet or, or gets shot by, uh, by accident. And if I'm incapacitated, I want to make sure there's somebody there who knows what to do to save my butt. And those are that, you know, that might be very selfish, but in the totality of the class, whether it's me or whether it's, you know, the youngest or oldest person in the class, we all deserve to know what the plan is, because if you've ever been in an emergency situation and you don't know what to do or where to go, it's a very helpless feeling. And it really helps to make sure things uh, go in a predictable fashion, having it written down and having people uh, already pre-assigned to go and make sure that uh, emergency uh, help is uh, called in a rapid order. Yeah. And, you know, as, as defensive instructors, if we're teaching a defensive class, I think it, it opens up an excellent organic opportunity to breach the concept of using a tourniquet or applying a compression bandage. Your range safety and briefing should never be a medical class, but outside of an NRA class where by policy, that's not something you're supposed to talk about. The USCCA really, really promotes taking a moment to go over how to use a tourniquet or how to use a compression bandage, you know, the same thing through ICE training. And I think that's prudent as a defensive instructor. You know, I've not had to pull a gun out of my holster to defend myself, and I hope that I never do. And I carry wherever I can do so legally. However, I carry a, a med kit on my ankle, and I've had to use that med kit uh, in real life. So if you think, well, you know, the gun could solve one thing, that tourniquet or that compression bandage could solve multiple things what's more likely to be used. So, hey, why don't we uh, take an opportunity to make sure our, our students know how to use these two items, the, the compression bandage and the tourniquet before class in case they need to, like you said, patch me up because doggone mm -hmm. it, I'm going home to my boy. Yep, exactly. And I was, I was on the range this past weekend. And one of the things we talked about, it was a very rural range that the volunteer fire department there would probably be in the 15, 20 minute range to get there. And yeah. we decided that as a group, that if somebody had a serious incident, we had, we had a truck, we knew where the keys were and we knew where the nearest hospital was probably you know, a little over 10 minutes away, but that would be a quicker way for a serious, um, injury than to go a long way for the ambulance to get there and then take and make that same, you know, 10, 10 minute drive, drive to the hospital. And those were all things again, plan out ahead of time because trying to go along and find the keys in the heat of the moment isn't the right thing to do at the same time, having people decide, is it the, is it the right thing to do or not the right thing to do? Um, you know, as you're calling 911, it'd be better go on tell 911 that you're transporting somebody so that they can meet you halfway, or at least have the hospital on notice that you'll be coming in than the other way around. And that's all goes to the planning. And that may not work for every range that's out there that worked for the rural area where we were in more of an urban setting. You probably do want to go along and take advantage of that first aid EMS uh, paramedics that are coming because they'll be there within, you know, two to five minutes. Um, you know, that's great in the urban, but when you're in the rural areas, sometimes you have to adjust accordingly. Well, you want to, you want to make your plan and root it in as much reality as we can possibly have. And too often, you know, folks will kind of look at their range safety briefing as 
oh, everybody's going to follow the safety rules and everybody's a range safety officer and we're going to have fun and be safe. That's really a kind of a pitiful way to look at it. Now, if everyone does truly follow the range rules and, and if everyone, you know, pays attention, the likelihood of needing to call 911 is drastically, drastically reduced. But, you know, again, as you mentioned, some of these things that really surprise you that, you know, I've had to call 911 on the range a number of times and, and I'll knock on my head because I don't have any wood nearby, never once for a lead puncture wound yet. And I hope that that never happens. However, heart attacks, man, and folks passing out because of heat exhaustion and, you know, hypothermia, that wasn't one we had to call 911, but we had to take someone and, and get them to get them some care. So, that's probably not the kind of stuff you're thinking of when you're doing a range safety briefing, because we're also laser focused on concerning ourselves with the potential gunshot wound, but really, and honestly, in a, in a class setting, gunshot wounds in the range are actually extremely rare. Mm -hmm. You know, when I do my instructor development classes, I, I usually kind of look around the room and if there's six guys there, I'll say, all right, Let's be generous and say we have 60 years of combined experience here, which quite often, you know, there's, there's a lot more than that in the room, but you know, how many people have had to call 911 because a gunshot wound in a class and most of the time people won't raise a hand. It hasn't happened for them. Um, now, granted, anyone that's a range safety officer on an hourly like range where people are paying by the hour to come in. That's a different story. I've heard some really wild West shows in those kind of situations, but really, and honestly, in a class, how often do you have people mm -hmm. called 911? It's, it's doesn't happen nearly as much, but we still have to understand that there is risk and acknowledge that there's risk, especially in a defensive class where you're using holsters. Cause when, when they do happen as rare as they are, a lot of times it revolves around some type of holster work, you know, either going into the holster or coming out of the holster. So that gives an, another one, uh, another thing to bring up and may give pause to someone for them to maybe take a little bit of extra care and make sure they're doing a good, clean, slow, correct rep, as opposed to getting sloppy. Exactly. In your opinion, Clint, what do you, how long should a range briefing be? Well, I mean, that's kind of how long is a piece of string, but I, <laughs> I think if you're going to cover what most range safety briefings require, I think it's going to be 10, 15 minutes, I think is, is realistic. You know, by the time you go through whatever the rules are, whatever the procedures are, and also breaching that, that medical plan and that emergency response plan, I think it's going to take you a few minutes, but that's time well invested. In my opinion, I would rather have a lengthy range safety briefing and everyone is clear and everyone acknowledges that there is indeed risk when human beings gather together. And perhaps by acknowledging that danger and that risk, most people will maybe keep their eyes open a little bit more and maybe slow things down a little bit and take a little more thought and care when they, whatever they're doing their exercises on the range or, or working in that competition or whatever that, that event might be. Mm -hmm. One thing I've uh, noticed that when you start a range safety briefing, um, I ask, you know, you, you know, who's got prior military, prior, uh, law enforcement, and even competition experience. And you ask them how many of them have seen accidents on the range and almost universally, if they've got any number of years, uh, in those three categories, they've seen some kind of accident. And I'm not talking about people necessarily always getting shot, but something where somebody, uh, somebody goes long, gets too close to a rifle and they end up getting, uh, a scope, uh, 
bite on the on their uh, forehead where they go along get real bad slide bite because they cross their thumbs behind a semi-automatic or they do something else um uh wrong uh about it and they end up having to call you know medical uh somebody medical to go along and take care of it and there's also the other situations where people you know we were talking about having strokes heart attacks but how common is diabetes how common are people that have recently, um, you know, had a surgery or have gone along and, uh, you know, been diagnosed with something to where maybe they're not, not fully, um, aware of what they're, uh, what could happen. And you as an instructor really need to know what's uh, going on. And I've got, you know, if anybody's got any medical conditions, you know, where they've mm-hmm. had recent, make sure they come over to me on the side and tell me, because if somebody's got, you know, just recently got put on blood thinners, it would be really good to know that uh, before we start shooting, because if they have a, uh, a small cut, it may become a major, a major problem for it. Or if they're diabetic, if they start acting kind of funny, I'm not going to go along and immediately think, okay, you know, they're taking drugs or do something else like that. I'll recognize that could be part of them going in diabetic shock. And go yeah. along and pull them aside and do it. And those are all things as a responsible instructor. Um, again, you're not a medical professional, but you need to be aware of those at least um, so that so it doesn't get worse. And if you're diabetic specifically, and I have a brother who is diabetic, you got to be very, you got to make sure everybody knows what to look for in you because we can all get too focused on the range and sitting there instructing people and not realizing that we're all of a sudden doing something wrong. And those are, those are signs when people start questioning about what you're doing, where they, somebody needs to raise a hand and make sure you realize that, Hey, maybe your sugar level's too low and being diabetic or somebody or your partner, assistant instructor needs to step in and say something because you want to keep the keep this uh, class state safe no matter what yeah I, I mean i did an article for personal defense network called developing an emergency response plan for the training environment and in the article i mentioned that although it may be viewed upon as kind of a nicety or a convenience i think having a box of granola bars and a couple cases of water on the range is a nicety but it's also a safety thing because dehydration causes people to do crazy stuff too. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever I'm working with other instructors, we'll keep an eye on one another. If I'm calling the range and I forget my range commands and I start going, um, uh, uh, that's probably an indication that I'm dehydrated. Most of us walk around every day dehydrated anyhow, but let alone, you know, being outside on an outdoor range all day, even in the, even in the winter time, you know, you can get dehydrated that in, in that kind of climate as well. So, you know, if you, if people do feel like low blood sugar, or if you're seeing some of those signs, having someone go, you know, cram down a couple granola bars might be the difference between that, an inconvenience of a break that maybe you weren't scheduling and, or having someone go into shock and get violent on the range. I actually had that happen. My mom is a diabetic and, uh, you know, she got diabetes when she was 12 years old and she's, um, actually pushing 90 now. And, Uh, She's lived with it her whole life. So I've been around that my whole life. And I was so upset when I didn't recognize that right away because the guy was cool. And all of a sudden he was getting belligerent and really kind of nasty. And his friend that was with him, like recognized it. And he's like, oh, dude, we got to get him. He's going into diabetic shock. And I'm like, crap, why didn't I see that? But Mm -hmm. we're so focused on guns. You know, the guns are the thing that are in the forefront of our, of our minds. And, you know, that's, that's prudent because, well, there's guns at the range, but it's those other things that surprise the crap out of you. 
Uh, you had mentioned yeah. someone on blood thinners. I had someone that was cut on a staple. We wrapped him up and he got back in the range. And 10 minutes later, there's, there's a pool of blood on the ground and he hadn't mm-hmm. clotted up. So we took him to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. All the, all those things, you know, for you, for somebody who isn't around it normally, you know, m- may not seem as an emergency until somebody goes along and says, Hey, I'm diabetic. I'm on blood thinners. I'm this. And it takes little things. And all of a sudden, you know, your, uh, if they start bleeding and it won't clot up right away, you know, you don't sit there and put more gauze on it, um, and hope it stops. It's one of those where like, yeah, we got to take you to the hospital, even though it's a small cut. And, yeah. you know, one thing I would add to it, if you, if you, if you're a tra- traveling trainer or you're out in multiple seasons, uh, during the year, make sure you go along and take that in consideration because in the winter time where we've got heavy jackets on and not dehydrating as much, but we still can. But then if you were out in the middle of the summertime, when it's 90 plus degrees and there's humidity, um, you know, that's a whole different environment that you that you're going to sweat out a lot faster. If you're in the out West, you know, in the desert, you're going to, you're going to dry out without getting sweaty. And those are all symptoms that you've got to be able to recognize for it. Um, it's, uh, you know, if you go someplace, it's, uh, fly someplace, you know, IE to Denver and you are at a high elevation. Your body may adjust differently to it than if you are just going down the street to a local, local range, all those types of things are special considerations that the instructor should, should take, take into consideration when it comes to conducting the class, keep an eye on everybody and potentially maybe taking a few more breaks to allow everybody a chance to hydrate, to get something in their bellies and to go along, maybe acclimate a little bit more out, you know, from not being in the sun. Sure. Sure. Um, You know, when you're, when you're talking about some of that, that pre-vetting of your students, uh, a lot of times you, you say, Hey, if you have any special needs or anything that I need to be aware of from a medical standpoint, you know, I'll be over here doing something before we go out onto the line, give them an opportunity to do that, you know, not raise their hand in front of everyone and say, well, I'm diabetic. Some folks may say that some folks may not, but this is a a great opportunity. If you have the ability to pre-vet your students with your waiver or, you know, maybe a, an email conversation before they come to class. Do you have any special needs? Are there some things I need to consider? And then that way you don't have to bring it up in that public forum. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the ability to do that, because that's not always possible, just making that statement, hey, is there anything that I need to know about or anything I should worry about or consider? Pull me off to the side and let me know. That's, that's a good policy to do. Uh, definitely a good policy. Going back to your original statement about the the response times, you know, a well-vetted SOP at the range, they should be considering that already. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the ranges I go to maybe don't have a proper NRA well-vetted SOP standard operating procedure. So, you know, it's a lot of, hey, let's come up with a really good plan here before the class starts. So, you know, if you're going to be at any range, that's a great question to ask. Hey, what is the response time here for police or, or excuse me, for, for, uh, for the ambulance or the fire department? And if you don't know that, that's, that's something that you would, you know, would be best to find out ahead of time. Because, you know, like you said, if, if it's going to be quicker for you to meet the ambulance at the nearest crossroads, then maybe that's a better idea to have it with the bed clean pointed nose out with the keys in it somewhere else. I did a DSF instructor course down in Alabama this year. um, And we were back on personal property. The road was pretty, 
an ambulance probably couldn't make it back there, uh, let alone the time it would take. So we we actually had an EMT that was taking the class. So we kind of deputized him because his training outranked mine, and and I knew he was legit. And so the deal was pickup truck and we drive him out and meet the, meet the ambulance. And so we would document that on our plan too. That way, whoever called 911 could read that off of the script. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely, and call 911 brings up a good uh, conversation there too, because a lot of case, a lot of people these days uh, refer to calling EMS as calling 911, but something people don't always realize when it comes to 911, especially when you're using cell phones, is it, re- it connects you to the nearest tower that you are by. And that nearest tower doesn't necessarily mean that it's in your county or in your state. Where I'm at in southwestern uh, Ohio, down by Cincinnati, um, I'm very close to the Kentucky line. I mean, literally, I can look out my window and, and look across the Ohio River now, and I'm within five miles of the Indiana line. And there have been times when I've gotten the wrong 911 dispatch. And unfortunately mm-hmm. with that, it also means that they have to route you to the proper 911 dispatch because there's no good way for them to transfer the information you give them as far as an address, uh, what's wrong to the uh, proper 911 system. And one of the things I recommend for people that if you're in this kind of a uh, Bermuda Triangle, uh, along state lines or count or county lines is go along and have the uh, dispatch number instead of nine one one. So you're you're calling, you're getting a hold of the right the right dispatch service uh, the first time instead of having being bounced around because that can save you time. Also, not something that everybody always uh, considers because we're so used to just dial nine one one. But if you're in any of those uh, rural areas or places to where you may not connect with the proper nine one one service, it definitely uh, c- could save you several minutes as they're trying to. Uh, uh, figure out which, what street you're on since it's not coming up in their state or in their uh, county that they're, uh, they're administering. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, the range I use in, in Pennsylvania that I'm at a lot of the times, my home range, it's not my range, but the range that I use uh, often, we're so close to the county line that the we could get Westmoreland dispatch. We could get Allegheny dispatch when you call from a cell phone. And the times that I've called 911 from my cell phone there it's about 50-50. I would get one county over the other. So in the in the range safety briefing, I write it out explicitly on the card. We call 911. We inform them what's happening. And then right away say, I'm in Allegheny County in this, in this town, as opposed to if I get the Westmoreland dispatch, they know to click me over to Allegheny because I need an Allegheny ambulance to come over. You know, in, in the range we use in, in Wisconsin for the DSF program at the Highlands, uh, we actually write out the full phone number because the 911 would call the county dispatch, which the ambulance is, I think, like 40 or 50 miles away. But instead, we call the neighboring county, which the ambulance shed is, I think, 15 miles away. So they figured that out ahead of time and they know call the neighboring one because the ambulance actually is physically closer and they, you know, got in touch with them and worked that out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And one recommendation I would have too, if you are running a range or have influence at a range is make sure they've, uh, talked to the, their emergency management services, uh, before they have a problem. And the reason for it is, is if the fire department comes or the paramedics come, they can look and see where they're driving to see what they can get by, what they can't get by and make that note on your address. They can also go along and help you, uh, 
you know, understand what their response time, what they're going to be required. Because keep one thing in mind, when you're calling 911, you're telling me you've got a training accident at a range. Um, there's going to be a lot of things going through their minds about, you know, did somebody get shot? You know, what, what's going to happen with all these guns that are going on and having all that, uh, documented or understood up front that somebody will meet them at the front gate and will take them back personally to wherever the, where the accident has happened can relieve a lot of uh, stress on those emergency responders when they're coming to an unfamiliar place. And all they hear is the sound of gunfire coming from every direction. That, that makes a good point. And, and while we're kind of on the whole emergency response plan here, um, you know, I recommend that you document this on a piece of cardboard. I, I write it out. I take a squeaky marker. Remember those ones we used to sniff when we were kids? Yep. Do one of them squeaky markers and write it out on cardboard. One, because we actually document the plan. Two, everybody there during the briefing is involved with it. So it becomes our plan, not Oh, if we need to call 911, read that poster over there, which is how a lot of ranges will approach it. But also I can put down that that specific information. So, of course, we want to get a hold of the, the you know, first responders or actually the, the second responders, if you want to be truthful about that. Uh, you know, call 911 or call the emergency dispatch number, whatever the appropriate number is, and you want to write it out. And then I recommend to my instructor candidates the best thing to do right out of the gate is say, we've had a training incident. We require EMS. And there's a couple reasons for that. The we've had a training incident. We require EMS can cover any single possible thing that could happen on my range. You know, anything from, you know, we, of course we would let them know what happened after we make that statement. You know, someone shot themselves on a reholster. Someone had a heart attack. Someone got attacked by a rabid tra- a raccoon in the trash can mm-hmm. that would cover everything. But also it has the added benefit of A, not being gun gunshot, which, you know, may may cause that 911 dispatcher to pull a different SOP off of his desk, which w- might require police lock the place down and, and wait for an all clear for the ambulance to come in, which honestly, today's political climate, knowing they're going to a gun range, that may happen anyhow, but I want to set myself up for success. The other thing is too, you know, words matter. So this is being recorded. If safety is my responsibility as the instructor and I call and I say there's been an accident, I've just now admitted that there's been negligence on my range. And I don't need to admit that on a recorded line. So an incident, I think, is actually a more uh, truthful word and there's less liability there. Now, I still might be scrutinized by a lawyer with some type of civil suit or something after the fact anyhow. If you want to eliminate risk completely, I don't recommend you run ranges and teach people to shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, by using the word incident as opposed to accident, it does mitigate risk uh, to a degree. So that's something I always recommend to my instructors. Of course, yeah. we want to give the address of where we are, and sometimes that's you know GPS coordinates were three miles southeast of Bob Road next to the burnout school bus. You know, we're not always at a club or at a, you know, a a range that has a street address. So knowing that ahead of time is pretty important. Yeah. And if you want a good example of this, the PDN article that uh, Clint was referencing earlier, um, I've got, we'll have that in the show notes for this. It has a very good example about the uh, topics, what you're going on and what you build as you're going through this, uh, the range safety briefing for the students so they understand what's going on 
put in a prominent place so that if something does happen, they have the information uh, required in order to call 911 and emergency services and, you know, in case you're incapacitated. And that that's um, Clint's got a very good article out there with uh, great examples of what, what to pull, put together. Yeah, documenting that address, documenting all that stuff. You know, most people don't know where they are. You know, I'm, I'm actually teaching right now at a, at a range in uh, the Cleveland area, and I couldn't tell you what the address is. So writing that writing that address down could be very helpful if I needed to call 911 on that range. And most students don't know where they are, too. They turned left at the stop sign because their phone told them to. Mm-hmm. So documenting that, making sure that's something that someone could read off of there, and also letting the 911 operator know where you're going to meet them or how to gain entrance to the facility or specifically where you are on the property. Because to say, if I'm, I'm on the muzzleloader range at Pitcairn Rowville Sportsman's Club, that's not going to mean anything to that dispatcher or probably to responding law enforcement unless they're members and really know that property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being very detailed that someone will meet you at the front gate or the nearest cross street or the code, the code to the gate is this, you know, drive past the clubhouse, turn left at the at the thing. You know, as detailed as we can get and write that on the script, the better, so that we can try to maximize that time and get those those first responders to the patient as quickly as we possibly yeah. can. Yeah, you know, a good example. I'll tell you why having all this information is important. Uh, at Boy Scout camp where I volunteer at, uh, one time we were up at the office and ambulance pulled up, and they were there because somebody had called nine one one. We were at the office and nobody in the office knew why they were coming because nobody had called and told us nobody had come up to the, to the front to guide the ambulance back. And it probably took us a good 10, 15 minutes to realize that somebody was walking up for one of the far campsites that had fallen, injured their hands, and they had called 911 because they were bleeding. They had, uh, their hands were punctured, all that. And if they would have just told us, we could have probably gotten the, uh, the ambulance back to them quicker than, than having to walk all the way up from the campsite. But that's where the information broke down. And because, uh, those campers did not let us know what was going on. Uh, response was uh, delayed because being at a camp, you just don't let people drive around the camp, uh, willy nilly, uh, trying to find somebody you want to send them to a specific, specific area. Yeah, definitely. Good. Well, Clint, I think we've, uh, covered brain safety briefings uh, very, very well today. And I hope that we've given a lot of our listeners uh, some thoughts on what they should include in the range safety briefing, maybe some things that they need to review with their facility from a standard operating procedure so they can go along and make it um, more safe and uh, ultimately a more fun experience for everybody involved there. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem at all. No. Well, hey, we've been asking all our guests, and you get this question t- twice in one month. But can you name an influential mentor who's uh, helped you get to where you are today? Uh, you, you threw me on the spot with this one last time. Of course, uh, you know, I, I had to give, give credit to my wife for being someone that's always supported me through all my crazy enterprises and things that I've always done. So she's still definitely on that list. As far as a professional mentor in this industry, um, three people pop in my head. So can I say three people? (laughs) Knock yourself out. Well, uh, Mike Hughes and Britt Lentz from Next Level Training have been very influential and very supportive of me 
And of course, so is Rob Pincus. Uh, all three of those guys have really, I think, gone out of their way to to help me better myself as an educator and and help to facilitate opportunities. The the videos I did for the NRA um, with the pistol marksmanship simulator program that was that was Mike Hughes and Britt Lentz going to bat for me, and they really suggested that I do those, and that was a huge opportunity for me to be able to. Well, help to empower a lot of my fellow citizens and a lot of my fellow instructors to take advantage of that program. But also, you know, it certainly didn't hurt me when it came to, you know, growing my brand and and helping to grow my notoriety. And having worked with Rob so much over the years, hosting him originally and then ultimately becoming part of his his instructor cadre, uh, he's he's always been good for someone to, you know, get some advice, whether that be marketing my company and building my brand or, or teaching. He's always been someone that was very willing and, and to, to lend an ear and, and give an opinion. So I would say those three guys have been equally influential and helpful to me as a professional. That's good. Well, uh, both uh, Rob, Mike, and Brent, I've met before, uh, great guys, and they're doing quite a bit for the industry as a whole. So that's uh, great, not to mention uh, many of us wouldn't be where we are today without our wives. So uh, I will include Jen also on the uh, <laughs> on your, on the list there of influential mentors, because I know she's uh, supported you as well as my wife uh, when it comes to our uh, hobbies and uh, urges that we do from time to time. Yeah, my... <clears throat> my nephew, I don't know if I mentioned this last time or not, but my nephew was taking a business class when he got out of the army and uh, he uh, wanted to interview me because I've uh, pretty much my whole life, I've worked for myself and had my own business. And he says, what's the secret to be able to have your own business for so long? And I said, marry, marry a wife that has gainful employment. <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret. Yep. That works, as they say, you know? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, Clint, where can people find out the classes you're teaching and uh, what you're, uh, where you're traveling and such? Uh, they want to get in contact with you. Yeah, well, I've, I've got some dates on the Personal Defense Network Tour coming up. If you go on to pdntrainingtour.com, you can see all of the instructors that have classes booked through the uh, PDN Training Tour. It runs from March to September this year. And uh, I've already hosted Rob for his Pennsylvania dates. Rob Rob Pincus was at my in, in my home area in Pittsburgh uh, or earlier last month. Uh, I've got a date on the tour in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, on National Train a Teacher Day. I'm doing an intuitive defensive shooting class in uh, Newcastle at a range called Red Dot Range that's uh, just recently been purchased by uh, Nate from Steel City Ammunition. He he and his company purchased that. Uh, they're donating it to me for National Train a Teacher Day. Uh, anybody can sign up for that class, but if you're fit the category for National Train a Teacher Day, I'll comp your comp your uh, class tuition to in observance of National Train a Teacher Day. That's June 18th. I also have another date on the tour. I'm doing a DSF Level One in Winber, Pennsylvania, which is near uh, Johnstown, and that'll be on September 17th. I might have a third date in the tour uh, that I'll add in, but I'm, I got to clarify if the range is available or not. But those are the PDN tour dates that I have. Uh, I don't actually have a whole lot of uh, Trigger Pressers Union courses booked at this time, uh, but you can see my schedule on TriggerPressersUnion.com on the schedule. Uh, meet the Pressers. Matt Maller and I were hosting Masad Ayub in Pennsylvania in 
November. That's a pretty awesome thing that's happening now. We've got enough people signed up to where it's a go. Right. And um, Massad's coming out. He's going to do a Mag 20, and then he's going to do his uh, uh, defensive firearms instructor course, the DFI. So if you want to do the DFI class, it's five days of training with Massad Ayub. Uh, it's all classroom. We're not doing any of the range stuff, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that to broaden my horizons as a as a defensive instructor and and also learn how that legal system works a little bit more and and what it might be like if I were called in as, as an expert witness or be called on the stand. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that one. So there might be a few other things we have booked. I'm talking about having Jamie Onion come out uh, from ICE training and he's going to put on a, a two person armed defense class and maybe a compromise shooting position course in, in August. We don't have those dates solidified yet, but, um, and I'll be adding more personal classes and user classes here soon, but I've been doing a lot of training for the USCCA over the last couple months and, and they've got me booked up pretty solid um, in a lot of states moving forward, doing a lot of CCHDF and DSF uh, level one instructor courses coming up. Good, good. Sounds like they're keeping you busy and out of trouble. So that's uh, always good to hear. Well, the, the busy, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to keep myself out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clint, I really appreciate your time tonight, uh, sharing your experience on the, uh, rain safety briefings, which are always important to make sure that we do it not only for our students' benefits, but also for our benefit, uh, for it and, uh, look forward to having you on again, somewhere down the future with another great topic. Well, it's always an honor to be in the show, man. You've done great work with this show and really grown it and, and, I'm proud of you, brother. Uh, great job. Thanks a lot, Clint. And you have a good night. All right. Take care. You too. That's a wrap for this episode. And we appreciate all our listeners out there. Do you have a suggestion for an episode or someone you would like us to bring on as a guest? Send that information to me on Facebook or better yet on our website at farmtrainerpodcast.com, where you can also search all our previous podcasts and topics to find one to help you in your training. And also email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com visit our sponsors especially firearm trainers association at ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance being a certified instructor and establishing a business were your first steps your next step should be getting fta coverage remember to use promo code ftp10 for 10 percent off check out and sign up for the guardian conference coming up in september all the information is at guardianconference.com we bring this podcast support in the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.